Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella. I'm Amy Scaria. And I'm Anna Linville. Today, our guest is composer Mark Engelbretson. Hi, Mark. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me here. So Mark Engelbretson is a uh, multifaceted composer, saxophonist, uh, and he also serves as a professor of composition and electronics at UNC Greensboro. Mark has been trained at some of the best musical institutions here in the United States and also abroad in France. Uh, your music has been performed around the world as well as frequently here in North Carolina. Um, your music envelops a fascinating cross-section of melody, driving rhythms, the use of acoustic live musicians, and electronics, which we're going to hear today. We're so excited that Mark today has brought in his saxophone and will be playing live for us in studio. So our audience is going to hear music that... Um, here in your music that you have a strong classically trained technique paired with pop influences as well as an embracing of what is modern, mainly through the use of electronics. Uh, you even have a piece that we're going to close out the show with where by you have the uh, audience using their smartphones. So That's we're right. yeah, we're looking forward to hearing that. Let's open up the show though with a live in studio performance of and Mark, you've got your alto sax today to play for us. Yes. We're going to listen to this piece called The Outside, commissioned by saxophonist Shen Li of Mahidol University in Bangkok. And quickly, did you go to Bangkok to premiere this work? Well, not to, uh, to premiere the piece, um, but I um, had met, well, I've known uh, Shen Li for a long, long time, and he had asked me for a piece. Uh, he, he does a lot of pieces that use electronics and computers, and he said, well, you know, I would like to have a piece where it's it's with a computer, but where I'm not like watching a stopwatch or hitting a pedal or following a click track. I just want to play, he said, as if I were a normal musician. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I wasn't uh, there for the premiere to answer your question, but and, and he uh, uh, premiered it there in Bangkok and has played it in uh, Singapore and Beijing and uh, um, a few different times. So, um, uh, but you know, we we worked together, and I started thinking, well, how can I, um, you know, how can I accommodate his request? And I wanted to create a situation where he would play, and the computer would simply follow him. And so, kind of like we were talking earlier, almost like an artificial intelligence as much as you can in this kind of computer music. Right. You know, I don't really want to make a claim for it being right. AI, you know, right. for real, right. um, out of respect to some really smart people who <laughs> actually do that. But um, the computer is listening to what the saxophonist does and uh, basically following along and doing its part um, sort of on cue when the saxophone the saxophonist reaches a certain point. And you're saying it's sort sport. of driven by connecting into various pitches. So when you play different notes, it's sort of depending on, you know, what notes you're playing. Now, do you vary the performance? Yeah, so that's really the great thing is that the sections of the piece, you can more or less play in your own time or most of the sections of the piece. Uh, at, at the end, it's exactly right in time but um, um, so that allows a, a great amount a great deal of freedom for the player um, to and just... much more control it seems yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly right mm -hmm. so it sounds yeah. I bet you he was very happy with what you produced well yeah he's he thought that it was like a new paradigm some uh, new thing that that maybe had never been done before I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case but it was uh, very kind of him to think that yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear this let's uh, maybe yeah. give it a little listen okay so what I'd like to do is um, I'll start kind of getting ready to play and what I'm gonna do is kind of start the piece and at the beginning parts of the piece kind of talk through what's happening so it you know it won't be full-on performance until the piece gets going and then at some point I'll just uh, 
keep playing and, and play to the end of the piece. Does, That's does great. that sound good? Yeah, sounds yeah. great. Awesome. Yeah. I really can't wait to hear this. Very interactive for our listeners. I've, this is I, fun. I want to say a couple of things about the piece. One is that it's based on a poem by Brian Lampkin, who's a, a poet uh, in Greensboro and uh, whose poetry has inspired me for a lot of pieces. And that poem is called The Outside, and um, listeners will hear his poem uh, recited as part of the piece. And, we, and if you like, we could talk about that yeah. later. Yeah. Yep. All right. So I've got to fire up my computer. Well, it's just about Okay. Ready. So what's going to happen is I start the piece, and it's waiting. And I'm going to play a short introduction. And um, following that introduction, I'll just... Uh, I'll let you know what's going to happen next. So here is, here is the outside. Until now, the computer hasn't been listening, but now it's listening, and it's listening for my my pitch A, concert C, um, and when I play that, it's going to answer. Then I'm going to play a few more notes, and it's not going to be respond until I take a break and play a different note, which will be my C. A little flourish, and it listens again, and again, and now we'll get a different effect cued on the next note that I play. Now some more sounds will enter. I'll play for a little bit. thing I'm going to say. I'll, I'll play um, a bunch of notes, a little line, come to a really high note, and that's a cue for um, the next entrance where you'll hear Brian Lampkin um, say the first line of the poem. <laughs> The outside is not mine any more than what's inside is yours.
some same roof. Walk into and out of door after door.
That was a really stunning piece, and uh, the creativity is just insanely off the charts. Thank you. Thank one. you so yeah. much. Thank that's, you. That's really something. Um, I, I did have a quick question for you about the poem. You know, the, the music is, is, sounds very, very personal, and I was wondering what about the poem, or what is the meaning of the poem, and how that ties into the music. Great question. Thanks. So the poem is, The Outside Is Not Mine, any more than what's inside is yours. And yet we live under some same roof, walk into and out of door after door, sometimes together. Uh, so poem by Brian Lampkin, and I, I really love this. I love his poetry in general, and, and this one is um, really speaks to me. I mean, it's, it's, of course, about relationships, you know, um, uh, and it's also about interior space versus exterior space. It's about the idea of, well, this, you know, what does it mean to walk into and out of door after door sometimes together with another person? And maybe and, even what it means to occupy that space or ownership exactly, of that space. Exactly, right. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of what I, yeah. And, and you know, I just think it's really, really deep, um, you know. I tried to, I mean, I was inspired and I tried to put a lot of things into the piece that relate to the poem. I think there are things that are inside the piece that actually belong outside the piece. Uh, for example, Brian's voice. Um, it would be great to have him here inside, but he's outside. And, you know, there's a kind of an interesting dynamic there. There's the idea of walking through doors and the, the piece is kind of structured as a series of gates, basically, that mm. you, you know, you, you, you open the gate, you walk through it and you're in another place. And um, so there, there's a lot of things like that. Have you ever there. done this piece live with Brian reading his poem? Well, we, we would love to do that. And I've, I'm working on a version that we can do together. We have a band uh, called The Difficulties. Difficulties, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, um, and we would love to do this piece. And oh, if, so Brian plays in your band He's with you. the poet. So he, he oh, reads uh, okay. his poems. And then uh, Susan Fancher, uh, a saxophonist, my wife, plays the saxophone. And she sings a little bit. And I play saxophone and computer, basically, in that band. And I, I think it's going to be possible to make a, a version. I, there's, there's some technical things that I need to work on, and especially the idea of performing this piece where the computer is listening closely to exactly what notes I'm playing in a noisier, maybe like a, a bar or a club kind of environment, uh, um, you know, might be kind of tricky. Where but, the ambient noise could kind of interrupt that. Right, exactly. But I, I think that's a small problem that needs to be addressed or solved, and I think it's possible. Yeah. So, I so. Mark, I have a question. Um, I, one, one thing that interests me about classical music today, or, you know, what we would, what listeners would think of as class, classical music, but maybe people who are uh, working in the field now think of more as concert music is what is music for? What do you see this music as being for? And, um, you know, we're, you were talking about having it, performing it in a bar or someplace like that. That's not a place where you normally think of concert music being performed. Do you think of, how do you, what is your vision of where concert music belongs in our society? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, wow. I mean, <laughs> that's or like, let's just, you know, what is music for? <laughs> let's just go, you know, right? go for it all, right? <laughs> Folks, um, we're going to be here until midnight. <laughs> right. No, but that's, that's great. Well, you know, the original conception for this piece is that it would be a concert piece, maybe played in a concert hall recital, you know, sort of setting. Um, I, I am less interested in that traditional thing where there's maybe a piano and an instrument, whether that's saxophone, violin or whatever. But I would, you know, so I'm trying to bring, you know, new and interesting kinds of sounds to that um, environment. I mean, at the same time, I mean, I've... Uh, you know, over the course of my lifetime, I've I've been playing in bars. I remember being a, a master's student in the late '80s and thinking, you know, my friends who, you know, either play jazz or rock or whatever, you know, they're they're out this weekend playing in a club, and I don't see why, you know, we shouldn't do that. And of course, that's been, you know, one of the really big things in music, I think, since the 80s until tonight, till now is, you know, the idea of presenting this music in alternative venues, uh, whether that be a bookstore, you know, we'll, you know, I play a lot in, in bookstores and galleries, clubs, 
what have you. And um, you know, I think also in our culture, there's a real melding between. You mentioned the '80s. I think even before then, you know, you talk about some of your influences are are pop. And I, I, my husband and I were listening to your music together earlier before the show, and we both thought that um, it's it sounded a bit from the '80s. Your influences, <laughs> 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 the pop influences, but you know, I think in our culture in the United States, we're such a melding of. I would never describe your music as uh, American sounding if you think in terms of Aaron Copeland as sort of owning that descriptor, right. mm-hmm. but. You are very much American sounding if you think in terms of America as a melting pot um, because you have this huge array of influences that sort of um, beautifully get woven into your music. Um, I heard a bit of, you. you know, I heard a bit of klezmer. I heard Middle Eastern sounds. I heard, you know, pop, but 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 definitely your own sound. Um, so talk to us about how the influences kind of how do you do you think about those? How do you think about them? How do they? How do you meld them so well into your sound? Yeah, again, we're going to need a long time I to know. cover this, but... <laughs> Succinctly, yeah. Right. Um, you know, as a composer and a saxophonist who's training, you know, basically conservatory-style training in, in the 1980s, I was trained as basically a modernist musician. Um, and w- I don't want to get into that, but, you know, whatever that might mean, but, you know, always trying to push the envelope and make things that are, you know, super difficult. And I still do a lot with virtuosity. So that, but, um, you know, I, I think at some point, along with most of the composers of my generation, I, I became a recovering modernist and tried to see, you know, another way out. My students, by the way, are not troubled with this. They're just like, why don't you just make some music? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, which is great, you know, we... Well, it's a different generation for yeah, your right, students. Right. Yeah, So, you know, but I, I really struggled with a lot of those things. And at some point, and this was, you know, a handful of years ago, I mean, I've had... I'm a saxophonist, you know, I've played jazz, you know, all my life, although I'm not a jazz musician, I, I wouldn't at But all I can say hear that. jazz in your music. Sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, I was playing in big bands with uh, with my dad's big band when I was in ninth grade. I mean, this, you know, goes way, way back. But, um, and so, you know, those influences have been in my music, except for, you know, some years ago, I realized um, I'm inspired by this uh, composer Ferruccio Busoni, who said in 1907, music was born free and to win freedom is its destiny. And it somehow hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, right. Yeah. Music is free. It, it's achieved its destiny. We, you know, honestly, we should do honestly whatever it is that, you know, we really want to do. And that's when I started really overtly um, referencing pop music in my music. Oh, and, interesting. And and an example of that, if you go to my YouTube, it's uh, there's Superglue, which is a saxophone quartet with playback tracks, which are it's just pop tunes for saxophone quartet with a with playback tracks. Oh, fun. And so, you know, I really started to do and, and that felt, I got to tell you, like jumping off a cliff. It was extremely in an exhilarating scary. way or scary oh, yeah. way no, oh no, got I, it got oh, it yeah. no, no i was exhilarated <laughs> I, I was you know it's like okay i'm i'm, I'm gonna go. do this here yeah. we go um but yeah it was it was really pretty scary and kind of soul bearing and and i feel like this piece you know does that too um you know that it's you know it, i i don't know if anybody would like it but but it's true and it's genuine and this is this is what I wanted to say in a piece of music. I think in general, people connect to artists, musicians who are speaking genuinely. Um, I think that tends to be true. I think I think of music as sort of this is our space to connect or connecting yeah. through sound. And so you putting your honesty out there is really, you know, I think it's going to I think it does appeal to many different people. Well, that's what we it's have picked to do up with. by the listener too. Definitely. Yeah, well, you can you. feel that. Thank yeah. You. yeah. Thank you. From from my perspective as a non-composer, um, it it means a lot to me to get an authentic, um, you know, piece of art that came from somewhere, um, came from a place of um, inspiration, and to know that place and to, for for you to have shared that um, in your program notes, that's really helpful for the listener. Um, also, you know, from a listener's point of view, with modern music, it can be sometimes very difficult. Um, because it feels like a one-way conversation or like we, you know, a lot of in the past, some people in the modernist um, movement have talked about educating the audience um, about so that 
so that they could appreciate the music. But in, in music like yours, where you have put something so personal into it, it's not like you don't really have to explain it. We can we can understand it without you explaining it. So, cool. yeah. Yeah, it's very I think inviting it's a, I music. I think it's, yeah. it's really great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit because you do perform quite a bit. You have your, your band, and but you perform quite a bit with electronics. And the piece you, we opened up with is an, is an unusual piece in that normally when musicians perform with electronics, it is more of a static occurrence. Right. And so talk to us about, I love the, the piece we opened up with because it is so fluid and responsive to what you're playing. Mm-hmm. But what is it like for our listeners, particularly listeners who may not have heard this kind of music before heard electronics mixed although i'm saying that and pop you know pop culture and television and film has really opened up the uh, the, if you think in terms of the general public we are all we've all heard this basically everything we're listening to is electronic music yeah exactly exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. so so yeah so what i'm saying sort of scratch that let's reverse because we're (laughs) all familiar with that but but talk to us about what it is from your experience as a as a uh, performer, what is it like to interact with a more static, fixed electronic sound? Sure. Well, you know, I have, you know, I think that's been a part of a lot of the work that I've done over the years. Going way back, you know, that is what we basically had was what we called tape pieces, um, where you might have a live performer and what we might call today a playback track because it's not on tape anymore. But, um you know, even my earliest pieces, um, She Sings, She Screams is one of them. I used uh, a system of notation that gave a lot of flexibility to the players. So the notes, the durations, the lengths of notes was not super strictly prescribed, um, but they had to kind of follow the playback track. And so that gave, again, some kind of fluidi- fluidity. Even though the track was fixed, the performance on top of it could ebb and flow a little bit more. So, I mean, I th- that kind of human element is something I've always kind of reached for. Is there another piece that we can listen to that might uh, give an example of what you just mentioned? Well, I don't know. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, or is I there another th- piece that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, well, I don't know if you wanted to talk about this other project, that uh, you know, this Gertrude Stein project. Yeah. Or, I'd okay. I'd love to hear um, about that. Okay, great. Um, so let's let's talk about that. Um, so uh, a, a few months ago, I was approached by Mark Dixon, uh, who is a sculptor in Greensboro, and he teaches um, sculpture at uh, Guilford College. And he has a group called Invisible that does um, kind of performance projects, but really oriented more in the art world than the music world. He does make a lot of things that... Um, uh, sculptures that produce sound, and a lot of these uh, sculptures are actually robotic. And yeah, and the sculptures themselves make sound, right? So, can yeah. you explain to us a little more what? Well, so yeah, in, for example, in this piece, uh, he uh, used a machine that uh, Mark Dixon used this machine that he invented that he calls the Rhythm One Thousand One. I mean, it, it's basically a very large and weird drum machine where he he created a, a large wheel and drilled holes into it, and he can put pegs in the holes. And then the wheel turns, and as the pegs go through a sensor, it will uh, it, it trips the sensor, and that's connected to one of many, many, many different percussion instruments that he has, and they will... They'll go. So it's like a player piano or like one of those. Yeah, old... yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, and, that's and, cool, and, but with percussion. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, bass drums, cymbals, xylophones, invented instruments, all kinds of cool. things that he found. Um, uh, you know, we're on, you know, kind of on radio. So it's 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 very beautiful to look at. It's it's definitely a visual sculpture. We can, we can post an image of it on our Facebook That'd page after this. Yeah, that would be exciting. Provide that to us. Yeah, go to our for, search for Composer Studio on Facebook and. Uh, you, we'll we'll post some things about that. And just for our Perfect. listeners, we're listening to Mark Engebretson, saxophonist, composer, although I should put composer first, saxophonist and professor at UNCG. So um, Mark and Invisible were asked to present a work in progress 
uh, up at UMass as part of a series that they had um, or th that they have going on up there. And he asked if I would join him because um, he thought in certain ways that he was working on the piece that it might uh, work out well with the kind of music that I make and the electronics and stuff like that that I might be able to uh, contribute to this. So, um, oh boy, the, the piece went through a, a pretty long um, germination. He gave me some uh, a visual image and I made kind of a synth track to that image. And then um, he also made a version that's 92% the length, so it's a little bit shorter. And the image is a palindrome, meaning, you know, it's the same, the first half and the second half are the same, but the second half is backwards. In reverse, in yeah. reverse of the first half, right. And so when I made these two tracks, I made them in different colors, as he did, so they have different sound qualities, but they're the same. So I have one track at full value and one at 92%. As you listen to these two tracks, we use some text by uh, Gertrude Stein, and you can hear this text um, where one voice is ahead and the other is behind, and they meet in the middle, and then they pull apart in the other direction. Um, that is actually the first track that I've got. If you if you want to cue that up, yes, it's yes, based on listen. the Certainly track. So yes, the Certainly track. This is the Invisible Project or otherwise called the Stein Project, and this is an excerpt from part one. Here we go. That was part one of the Stein Project, also called the Invisible Project. So, so tell us a little it's bit. Got a really long title. <laughs> <laughs> well, while that was playing, we were talking about some of the ways you were performing this piece. So, go ahead and explain. Um, what listeners could hear was this track with the voice of my stu student Treya Nash uh, reading a text by Gertrude Stein. You could also hear percussion sounds that were generated by Mark Dixon in the way that I described before. And then you could hear some keyboard sounds that I was playing. And the way I was playing them is I was typing on a Selectric typewriter. Um, this instrument uh, Mark Dixon invented called the Selectric Piano. And basically, when you type letters or words, um, the Selectric keyboard creates a binary code, which is then captured and through a bunch of electronic circuitry that is way above my pay grade, uh, but Mark <laughs> knows all about, it's translated into a series of hammers that sit above an elect electric keyboard and physically bang the keys on that keyboard. So electric keyboard. Electric keyboard, yeah. yeah. So essentially by typing on the typewriter, I'm playing the keyboard. 
Mm-hmm. And the stuff that I'm typing is this uh, text by Gertrude Stein, uh, an excerpt from The Making of Americans. That's so cool. I yeah. wanted to ask you about, because you you use a lot of um, techniques in your music, and you also interact quite a bit with text, but not necessarily in a traditional manner. Um, and so, and I also read that you have worked with text by Maya Angelou. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, was she living when you... Yeah, that was a project where uh, close to the end of her life, she came and uh, did a, a presentation project at UNCG um, where um, she, a, a bunch of us made works either on or about her um, poetry or, or, or whatever, and and then she spoke uh, afterwards. Oh, it um, sounds like it was beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, and and the the poem I, I used was the very well known "Still I Rise." Um, unfortunately, mm. we had the rights for that one performance, um, and uh, so yeah, that can you, make that's a, that's a tough aspect of yeah, working yeah, with w- living. You would have have to poets, have to be yeah, there. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but actually, um, that's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, this some the. It, you know, music is eph- ephemeral anyway, and nowadays it's it's it can be difficult for composers to get recordings of their works. Sure, you might have a live performance with a, an orchestra. We've talked about this quite a few times um, amongst ourselves about the the business of being a composer and how you um, sometimes complicates yes. things for us in <laughs> in terms of sharing it. Yeah, with but I'm curious about your interaction with text and how you think about. Because just for our listeners, most composers, when they interact with text, they will set it, meaning they will take the text and put notes to the particular syllables, to the words, and have a singer sing them. But Mark, in your music, you you deal with text in a very uh, unusual and individual uh, way. Will you talk to us about that? Well, I hope I hope it's uh, individual. I mean, I, I have, I, I will say for the record, uh, set text that is... Uh, sung kind of in in the traditional manner. Um, uh, for example, some text by um, Brian Lampkin and uh, Rilke in a piece called Beholder. I love but, Rilke. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll make your head spin. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, you know, with some of the, some of the pieces that I've done are collaborations with Brian Lampkin, and the whole idea is that he is going to basically read or recite the the poem and then I make music that kind of goes around that mm. um, so in like the the piece the first piece that we did together which is called the difficulties um, but that's you know, also the name of your band and that's correct? the name of the band yeah. exactly the name of the band comes from the the poem um, he reads the poem and um, and then I'm playing on a saxophone again my instrument and the computer is again listening for specific pitches so it's doing this kind of pitch recognition thing and um, responding when it hears and th- and then the, the the part is basically improvised but in order to get the computer to respond I have to improvise pitches that it's listening for it's a very fluid way of creating and sure. a very collaborative way as well yeah you know we think in terms of you know most people are familiar with more traditional classical music where the composer has written notes down and really, you know, formulated the piece. And it's really in a lot of ways set in stone where mm-hmm. the interpretation might vary from conductor and or performer. But what you're creating is much more fluid and much more sort of like in the now. And yeah, in that case, certainly it's it's very different. And I've had um, I've, I've heard recordings that are very, very, very long of that piece and some that are very, very short. Mm. And, um, and it's been done in a, a lot of different ways. And I find that really interesting. Mm, yeah. 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 As do we. Mark, do you have any other music you'd like to share with us today? Um, well, so um, the other piece that I brought is called Luminous. And I wrote this piece for Steve Stusek, who is also a saxophonist and my colleague at UNCG. And for this piece, um, you know, I had been thinking for a long time that I wanted to find some way to use smartphones um, in, a, in a musical composition. And so, and, you know, I'm certainly not the person, the first person, you know, to have done something like that. But um, 
I thought, well, it would be really nice if we could use the audience's smartphones. And I talked to a former graduate student of mine, Jonathan Stewart Moore, and asked him for some advice on how to you know, go about thinking about it. I was like, well, maybe I'll write an app. And um, you know, the whole technique, the, the, the chops, the coding chops you need to write apps was, at least at that time, you know, way, way more than I could actually do. But uh, my student Jonathan said, look, why don't you look into broadcast services, you know, some kind of streaming service? And I thought, okay, uh, I'll, I'll try that. Um, this was actually a little bit before, you know, YouTube go live and, and Facebook streaming. Those things actually were a thing. It's, All right. It wasn't that long ago, but it was yeah. actually a little bit before that. Um, so I looked into a program called Mixler, M-I-X-L-R, or a, a broadcast service. And, um, you know, it's made for basically doing podcasts where you might, um, you know, play some audio files and you might talk, like talk over or in between, basically do a, your own kind of radio show. And so what I did is I got a bunch of my students together and, and I said, okay, uh, I'm going to play some sound files and you're going to go to this broadcast with your phones and follow the broadcast. And what I figured was that they would get the broadcast and it would be delayed, you know, that it would take a little while from when I sent it to when they actually got it because it would just take a little time. So I, um, you know, I had maybe 15 or 20 of them in a room. I played some sound files and what happened was it was delayed, but everybody's delay was different. And I was not expecting that. Mm. Um, so... You know, if you've ever had two phones in a car that are both doing navigation, yes, you know, you get that the, delay, even yeah. if you're on the same uh, platform, you know, they will be, the delays will be different. They'll be out of sync. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And, you know, I just hadn't expected that at all. And I had to rethink how I was thinking about the piece. I had to build a piece that would tolerate not just a delay, but that everybody's delay would be a different. A multiple delay. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and so you get this kind of um, spatialized digital delay, but it's also kind of random and unpredictable. You don't know what it's going to be. So I made um, these sounds in a synthesizer that are very twinkly and that don't really have a steady beat to them uh, necessarily. And those kind of form the, the background of the piece. So... The piece is also, it's, um, I read it was, it's based on, it's inspired by an, an artist named Olafur Ilyason. He's yeah. A, that, did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, close enough? Close enough, yeah. <laughs> how, well, how, how should we pronounce? Olafur Ilyason, I think. <laughs> I, think um, I think he's Icelandic and has done most of his work in, uh, in, in Denmark. I believe he lives in Denmark. Um, you know, you could, we should put up a link to his site, which is really beautiful. He, he works a lot with light. And um, spaces either that you could walk through and uh, where the light might evolve and change as, as you're observing it. Which and is if we could hear light, and our audience will hear this, but this piece that we're, we're going to close out the show with called Luminous really does, if you can hear light, it sounds like light. That's what Very I was twinkling and. Totally what I was going for. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It definitely comes through. I'm yeah. curious um, because we don't want to close out the show just yet. So I'm mm -hmm. curious to ask you about as we lead into this final piece. Where do you see music going in terms of how we interact with, you know, we talked about you, the piece you did earlier, um, the, outside the outside that you opened up with is as close as you could get to AI. But as we kind of live into this world where we're becoming much more intimately, uh, our lives are becoming much more intimate with technology, with artificial intelligence. We, have you thought in terms of where do you see us going as musicians, as creators of music in our relationship with, with technology, with electronics, with AI? Well, I don't think anybody really knows, but I, I think True. you're I think you're exactly <laughs> right that um, you know comfort levels with technology have gone up a great deal. You know, I mean, my parents you know surf the internet and you know text and and stuff like that, and um, you know it's it's just uh, it it really um, saturates our 
our lives today. And it certainly saturates the music that, you know, people uh, listen to today. You know, I, I really do think that we live in a period where um, it's not really possible to think of the development development of music in a sort of linear historical narrative. True, especially or, in this nation where, you know, you were talking about your students are much more comfortable with kind of embracing different sounds. Sure. And really in this nation, we've explored, I mean, what an amazing time to be living as a 21st century composer because really it's, I mean, the sky's the limit on yeah, what we can pick cool. from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's really, the, the rules have sort of been thrown out at some point, you yeah, know. Mark, this, right. this piece has some uh, quarter tones in it. Is that, is that correct? It and that, does. That comes from Middle Eastern music or is it well, influenced by Middle Eastern music It is way? used a lot in Middle Eastern mm-hmm. music. That's, uh, that's correct. And a lot of of non-Western cultures will have scales based on um, different divisions of the either of the octave or the step or something like that. And I'll just it, pause you one second yeah. to explain to our listeners, we're talking about quarter tones, which we all know, we all get familiar with, like, let's just think in terms of pop music where we have the scale. I think most people understand what a major scale sounds like. Now, when we talk about quarter tones, we're talking about those tones between exactly those notes that we get used to. The, yeah. the notes between the notes. So the between, notes the between the notes on the, notes. Uh, yeah. on the, the piano, yeah. for example, it would be something that comes between, uh, let's say, a B and a C or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and like you said, in so, many cultures, it's those tones, using those tones in between is really normal. And yeah. really, Western music is the keyboard-based music. Sure, yeah. And many in, others aren't. So In my case, it, it comes a lot from just my instrument and a lot of the repertoire that I played when I was younger that was very kind of complicated and it had, um, you know, a, a lot of really interesting pitch structures. And another sound that you will hear is uh, um, multiphonic, which is on a saxophone playing more than one note at once, which was at one time considered a real avant-garde technique. Um, and so it's it's in there, but it kind of makes sort of a textural sound in, wow. in this case. Um, so in my case, it really comes more from that, but it does certainly exist in a lot of uh, different world musics. Yeah, know. and when people hear this piece, it's it's in an ABA structure. And what it's I mean by that is, yeah. yeah, you'll hear this, what Mark was describing as the light sounds and this interaction. Is that the interaction mm-hmm. with the cell phones? In the um, yeah. opening, yeah, and then yeah. the end. And what you hear in the middle section is where we hear a pause in the electronics, and there's this really free, um, when he was talking about, so in music we call those extended techniques, and what those right. are is when an instrumentalist really pushes the boundaries of what the instrument does. And so you hear a lot of things like, um, is it called slap tongue? They're uh, slap tongues. Slap yeah. tongues, which are very sharp percussive sounds that yep. are still still a note, but it's a little less defined and, exactly. and more of a percussive sound. And then you hear that kind of sliding that introduces the quarter tones. And what my husband in particular loved about listening to your music, and by the way, I have to say, we were talking about 80s music, he heard this piece. He said, "Oh, it reminds me of the early Pink Floyd music when they really kind awesome. of yeah." <laughs> <laughs> nice. So yeah, I, I said, "I said, Zane, you have to come listen to this." It was just it, yeah, we were kind of really geeking out over this piece before cool. we came. Yeah. Well, but, let me just say a couple of, of other brief things about about the recording so that people yeah. know like what what they're actually going to hear. So it, this is a really hard piece to record because the sounds you really have to go to a concert to hear it live to really know what it's going to sound like mm. to hear to get that experience of hearing the sounds coming out of the audience's smartphones. Oh, that's cool. So it's right? this sort of oh, I'll have to come to a Do you have any yeah. performances coming up? Um, I, of this piece. Well, everything's well, I know. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I'm momentarily forgetting what I time we're in right now. I was supposed to be just yeah. coming back from one and then going to another one yeah. in, in Texas, but it it's all right. Yeah. Um, but you we'll know, so, announce it coming up on our Facebook page. Okay. That sounds, when we get back to yeah, back that, that to our regularly good. scheduled lives. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, um, so um, what happens in live performance is that the saxophonist triggers different sections by hitting a foot pedal, and also using a different foot pedal, uh, uh, they will open or close the built-in microphone on the computer and so parts of what they're what they are playing goes to the broadcast and so parts of that is streamed to the smartphones now in this recording that my friend Steve Stusek made it's kind of a studio mock-up 
of that situation. So we did this in a in a studio, and I think it really sounds beautiful. I think his performance is great, uh, but like I said. You got to go hear this one live to actually get the experience. So we are going to listen to Luminous. This is the piece that we've been talking about here, and it is composed by Mark Engelbretson. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Have a wonderful week.
been listening to The Composer's Studio, created and produced by Amy Scoria, Anna Linville, and Tara Ghirardella. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash composerstudio. Pop over to our Facebook page for bonus links, music, tidbits, and news about our featured composers. You can also visit our website at www.composerstudionc.com. If you are a composer and interested in being considered for a feature on our show, reach out to us at composerstudionc at gmail.com or send us a note through our Facebook page or website. We'd love to hear from you. The opening music for our show was composed by Tarek Ghirardella, and the closing music was composed by Amy Scoria. Until next week, thank you for listening and opening your ears to the music of today. Thank you.